Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, I'll try it one more time. Maybe you ought to hit the person next to you. Good morning, everybody. Okay, at least I know you're there. I can only get so close to you. Make sure that I can actually see you. You know, I have a friend who starts every message that he gives with, you could be anywhere this morning for a number of reasons, but you're here. And he kind of goes through all the different things you could do. And the truth is, in New York City, there really are 10,000 other things you could be doing this morning other than here, but I am glad you're here. And I think it's important for us uh, to be in worship to talk about these things. And this morning, I really just want us to look at this one big idea that what you believe matters. And um, what I love about Google in the old days, I would have to look up something in an encyclopedia, but now I can just Google it. And whether it's true or not, it was, since it was on the internet, it must be true. And um, so I pulled up, and I had heard this before, I was a history teacher before I got into the ministry, that there were a number of uh, uh, soldiers in the Japanese army that after the war was over, they thought it was still going on, and so they kept fighting. And uh, so I googled this, uh, one uh, Japanese soldier that they found on one of the Philippine islands, and uh, he had been there for 29 years after World War II. 
still collecting intelligence. See, he was under radio silence, so he didn't know and was never notified that the war had ended, and so he kept going on hoping that someday the Japanese would invade this little island off the, in the Philippines. And so when they found him, um, his name was uh, Onada. When they found Onada, uh, it took some convincing to get him to uh, get off the island to believe the war uh, was over. So what's the lesson? The lesson is simply this. What we believe matters to how we live. What we believe shapes how we live today. If you believe that the war is not ended and you're a soldier, you will soldier on. And in some cases for 29 years. If you believe that good people always get ahead, they always accomplish uh, what they set out to do, then you will try to be good. If you believe that if you work hard enough, then you can get uh, uh, any goal that you set, then you'll try really hard. If you believe that humanity rose out of the primordial slime and uh, therefore there is no meaning to life, then you will live your life as if there is no meaning and purpose. If you uh, believe that there is life after death, then you will live as though this 70 or 80 or 90 years, however many you get on this planet, you will live in light of eternity. So it matters what you believe. And so we're finishing our series on the Psalms today, and we're looking at Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 is attributed by historians to uh, Moses. And Moses is known for writing uh, uh, five writings in the Bible, the first five writings, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but primarily for his work in the book of uh, Genesis. And so many, many people who grew up in and around the church, and many people who don't, know the opening line of Moses' work. And I think that's why Psalm 90 starts out the way Psalm 90 starts, by giving a tribute to God who created everything. In fact, the first line is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I'll bet you that no one here could quote the last line of Genesis. The last words that Moses writes in that particular writing goes like this. They embalmed him, and Joseph was put in a box in Egypt. Now, I I can understand that nobody's got that one on the tip of their tongue. Because nobody uh, tends to know how it ends and why there's this box of bones. But for me to tell you that, you've got to give me one minute or so to tell you the story behind that quote, that sentence. There was a man in, in, uh, um, in Israel, before it was Israel, before it was a promised land, before it was anything. His name was Joseph, and he's one of uh, 12 uh, kids of Jacob, who happens to be the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. That's kind of how Genesis is often laid out by these great uh, patriarchal figures. And so Joseph is uh, in the family of Jacob with 11 brothers, and there's this tremendous 
uh, sibling rivalry going on, so bad, you know, uh, that the 11 boys decide to take their one brother, who seems to be dad's favorite, and uh, throw him into a pit. And then later, they figured, well, dad's going to find out we're going to be in trouble, so let's just say he's dead. So let's sell him off and then tell dad that he died. And so it, that's kind of sibling rivalry taken to the extreme. It's something that would uh, make it for uh, a 2020 or a Dateline episode, but that happened in the Bible. And so he goes down and is sold and becomes a servant in a house, a guy named Potiphar, and his wife accuses uh, Joseph of accosting her in the home while the husband is away. And, and, and so when they catch him, they do catch him naked. And, and so they throw him into prison. And while he's in prison, he interprets a dream of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh so indebted to him that he uh, makes him the equivalent of prime minister of Egypt, which is really kind of cool because a famine comes along. And because a famine comes along all over that region, he's in charge of keeping the food and distributing the food so people don't go hungry. So what happens, and it just shows you uh, that uh, what happens, eventually you're going to pay a price for. The 11 brothers show up because they want to uh, get some food for their family. And so they show up and, and they realize that their brother Joseph that they had sold into slavery is the, is the guy distributing the food. And so they apologize. He forgives them. But he says, I only make one request. Here's my request. That you're going to end up here. But eventually God is going to take you home. When you go home, I want you to take my bones with you. So we're requirement are asked but that's exactly what happens 400 years later later they've got they've been in slavery for 400 years and uh you know the story of the 10 plagues and and moses leads them out well there's also a box of bones that go with them and that ultimately 40 years later after wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years they go into the promised land they carry the box of bones and they bury it there So why do I tell you that story? It's because I think there are two lessons that that story teaches that Psalm 90 reminds us of. And that is these two lessons. The first lesson is this idea of humility. That Joseph had a humble life. And you say, well, he became prime minister. I'm not talking about what he achieved. I'm talking about how he lived. You see, he lived humbly because he knew no matter how much power the Pharaoh gave him to have at his disposal, there was one enemy that he could never defeat, death. That no matter what he did, that eventually Joseph would die and he lived in light of that. And then secondly, there was hope that came with the humility. And his hope was that He was part of a larger story. He was part of a larger plan. He was part of a a larger idea than simply being at the right place at the right time or in the early life, the wrong place at the wrong time. And that was when he was buried, he was part of the promise that God had gave to his people. And so he lived incredibly humbly and yet with great hope. And so we're going to look at those two big ideas. How do we live in the 21st century humbly but with hope? 
because that is the definition of life based on the gospel that we believe. So first, let me try to define humility. What makes defining humility so hard to do is there's so much false humility in the world. In our culture, it is so common to go up after an athlete accomplishes some great task or some musician who plays incredibly to go up to them and say, uh, you did a great thing, and then they say, well, you know what? There were all these other people who helped help that happen. That's not what they really think. That's not really what they believe, but they know that's what people want to hear. That I played the piano wonderfully, but it was really the orchestra that made it sound great. Or a vocalist, yeah, I know I had backup singers, but you really came from me. Now, they would never say that because we would say they were what? Arrogant. (laughs) That's not living with humility because it's not recognizing something. So that's part of the problem. And then another part is how we see humanity in general, the way that we understand. There are really three different big ideas about humanity. I'm just going to call one of them optimistic. It's optimistic because I really think since the Enlightenment, it has been the predominant view of humanity. And that is that we're basically good people, that a few do some things that aren't so great, but in general, if you ask people to do the right thing, they'll do the right thing. Somewhere behind that is this idea that we're pretty good. We're the... uh, the bee's knees, sorry for the old illustration, the, the, the pinnacle of creation. And therefore, we are the singer, we are the athlete, we are the pianist at the core. And so everybody kind of noticed humanity is pretty God. But then somebody says, but how do you explain the monsters? If that's true, how, how do you explain the monsters? And so there's the pessimistic view. That basically humanity is so messed up that occasionally somebody does something good. And, and, and so you might say, well, that's the half uh, full, half empty glass approach to the world. And the truth is, you're right. But I do think there's a third, more realistic, and that's why I call it the realist view. Neither are we basically good nor are we basically bad. I don't mean we're neutral. I just mean reality, that there's something about us that is good, something wonderful that the Creator looked at His creation, specifically man and woman, and said, hmm, that's good. In fact, He he says it over and over again, and finally, after He creates man, He looks back at it, and he, He says, it's very good. So there's something about our humanity that God values as good. But it is also true about our story that it wasn't good enough to be good. We wanted to be more. We wanted to be better. We wanted notoriety. We wanted name. We wanted fame. We wanted to last. And so we looked at our good God and said, you're not good enough. We'll be good on our own. And so the reality is we cracked what was good and beautiful, humanity. And it's not recovered from that. We call that 
in a, a theology world as the fall. But in a pessimist and in a realist view, we recognize both of those, but we also recognize this. And I love um, Hannah Art wrote a beautiful book, The Banality of Evil. And uh, if you don't know who she was, she's a historian, journalist who attended the 1961 trial of Adolf Eichmann, uh, one of the monsters of uh, uh, Nazi Germany. And so she attended the trial. She was able to go every day, and after it was over, she ended up writing this book, and it got her into a lot of trouble because of the line I'm going to read you in her book. Because she said this about Adolf Eichmann. She said, Eichmann seems very ordinary, rather bland, just a bureaucrat, neither perverted nor sadistic, but terrifyingly normal. Can you imagine all the witnesses at the 1961 trial were survivors of the Holocaust? And for her to say he was normal. Because if you are an optimist, you don't have an explanation for Adolf Eichmann. If you're a pessimist, well, he's just a monster that sometimes comes along. And she says, no, 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 wait. We are capable of that because we are all broken. And if we can't recognize the reality of humanity, then we'll keep repeating this because we'll keep getting surprised that one of us will do this to another human being. Humility is simply living in light of the reality of our humanity. It's simply living in light, shaped in our behavior by what we understand about humanity. And that's why our text seeks to do that through two big ideas. The first one can be found in verse 3. And it says, we are mere mortals. Listen to verse 3. You turn people back to dust. Return to dust, you mortals. And then go down to verse 5. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass, uh, grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new. But by the evening it's dry and withered. And then verse 10 Our days may uh, come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. You hear what the writer is saying, the psalmist is saying, part of humanity is the fact that we don't last. We were built to last, but we don't. And do you live in light that you're a mere mortal. The fact that you might get 70 or 80 years or maybe even a little bit longer than that, but ultimately, death will claim you. Decay will come first. That's the first thing that happens, right? Is that there becomes a time when we're at our peak and many of you might be in that category. But some of us in the room, peak season was a long time ago. And we've moved past our peak because we know things that used to work don't work as well anymore. And it takes longer. I don't know if you've kind of noticed, but it takes longer. It takes longer to recover. It takes longer to get out of bed. It takes longer to get to bed. Life 
moves through decay that ultimately reaches death. And after death, we return to dust. In fact, the psalmist is so honest by saying, our days end with a moan, and they pass quickly. Do you live in the reality of the precious brevity of your life? First time I noticed that, and I think God doesn't show us that all at once and too young. Um, but sometimes he shows it to us in these markers, and maybe you can remember the first time you, you came face-to-face with your own mortality. I was at my father's funeral. I was about 41, 42 years old. And uh, in the infinite wisdom of my parents, they named me after my father, who was named after his father. And so we go to the family graveyard, and there are two tombstones there, and my name is on both of them. That's the first time I noticed I may not last. (laughs) The truth is, if you will live in the light of your mortality, you will live humbly. Because you won't seek to make your name great. You will seek to make the great name of God great, unknown. If you live on this earth and you think you're going to last, whether it's by putting your name on a, on, on a building or on a statue or somehow you live something of eternity here in a brick and mortar, that's you making your name great. And I'm not against your name being on buildings or, or writing a book that becomes a classic. I think that's a wonderful thing. But if that is your goal in life, you're not living humbly. Because the only true great name in the cosmos is the creator of the cosmos. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. And so either we are desperately hard at work trying to make our name last, or we are desperately trying to make his great name known. Those are the two options. And humility leans you one way. The second big idea behind humility is we live before the face of God. The old philosophers used to call it coram Deo, before his presence, before his face. And this makes us a little uncomfortable, especially the way the psalmist describes it. Look at verse 7. We are consumed by your anger. And terrified by your indignation. Verse 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And then verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Listen. If we live before a face of Santa Claus. Or if we live 
before the face of a doting grandfather, that's one thing. But to live before the face of a God who gets angry, has indignation, and is a judge is very different. And that makes us uncomfortable because I'll tell you why I'm uncomfortable. is because I don't want ever to have someone in the position of being able to judge me. I don't mind people having their own opinions about me, but never in the place of a judge. That means they can affect what? Your life. And we don't like people in positions that can do that. And so we fight that. It's one of the reasons that I think that our culture really struggles with accountability. How many of you... uh, uh, are in your first job and the first eye-awakening uh, moment of accountability is when you do your first annual review. Something you never had in college, never happened before. Then you sit down with your employer and your, your, your boss goes through and gives you an evaluation and for the very first time somebody says something, well, this is what you could really be working on. What do you mean? I'm the best thing since graduation. I have 400 participation trophies. I have 300 perfect attendances in school. How in the world could you say there's anything that I need to work on? I'm a finished product. Have you not seen my degree? I think in our culture we really struggle because we never want anyone to sit in the place where they can make a judgment about us that affects our life. And so, when you have no judge, you can't have humility. Which is why I think pride rules our culture. It is because we've not had accountability. Listen, there, there, there's a plenty in a secular view of this. A secular view simply comes around and says, there is no God. <laughs> you know, uh, you, if there's no God, there can be no accountability. If there is no God, there can be no judge. And so let's just get rid of the guy. Or at least let's reduce him to a position that he's out there as a higher power, but he's not really interested in us. Kind of what the old uh, uh, founders of our country called deism. So that's one. But there's a religious version of this too, right? And that, and that simply, God is so good, so loving, so gracious that I can't imagine in my mind that he ever would be kind of like that first evaluation, would ever give me something to work on, would ever say that there's something wanting, that somehow the fall has affected me this way, and I see the world through that prism, and that needs to change. And that is why in a lot of religious circles, God ends up being kind of like a grandfather, who dotes on his grandchildren, or a Santa Claus, someone that you can just pray your long list of things you want, and if he gives them to you, see, I told you he was a good God, and if he doesn't, well, he wasn't that great anyway. It's one of the reasons we struggle with our view of God. So, we try to diminish this aspect of, the, of God's character as one who holds us accountable for the life in which he gave us if he's the creator, if he's the one who owns all of creation because he started it, then he has a right to tell you how to live. And when you're not living that way, to say, hey, I need you to turn, we call that repentance, and come back to me. 
we diminish that because we don't want someone in that role. We feel that that's a too harsh. And it's incredibly hard to introduce someone who doesn't know that God to that kind of a God. And so we shape the God into a more presentable, a more acceptable view. But really what all we've done is we've created a God of our own imagination. Not the one true God that we have to deal with. And so we don't come to God in humility. We'll come to God in pride. We don't come to one another with humility. We come to one another with pride. And so I believe it's one of the reasons why we hide so much about ourselves. Because I'm afraid if you knew me as I know me, then you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't accept me. You wouldn't love me. And so the best I can hope for is for you to fall in love with an image. And while you're looking at the image, I can be over here and be my real me. We think that's works with God. And so Coram Deo, this idea of living before the face of God, is that he sees our secrets. Did you see that in verse 8? He tells you, you have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. That word there is the face of God. So God sees us, he knows us, and he's also our judge. See, if you live your life in light of a God who holds us accountable for the life in which he created and gave, then you will live humbly. You won't be out there insisting everyone live before your face. See, that's one of the things that we do, don't we? Is because we don't want anybody to be our judge, we, there still has to be a judge. So I'll be it. I will look at your life and I will determine how good you are based on my standards, or at least the standards I want you to live by. But see, if you live humbly, you not only won't do that, but you'll realize everyone is struggling in life before the face of God. Everyone has secrets. Everyone has struggles things that they've been hiding from the closest and dearest people to themselves because they're afraid that if they let that secret out, then the jig is up and it's all over. Then I'm exposed. Like uh, the king who wore no, no clothes and finally someone said, hey, does he know he doesn't have any clothes on? And we're afraid if that moment ever comes to us, if we're ever exposed in that way, then the jig is up and it is all over. So we must keep it the way it is but it is a terrible way to live to live in a way where nobody knows you in a way that nobody is able to speak into your life nowhere you can go and be you is a lonely isolating depressing place to live and yet millions upon millions of people live in that place because they think there is no other place to live which brings me to hope. If that is humility, it is not without hope. It's grounded not in us, but in the character of God. And that's why he gives us these big three ideas about God's character. And the first one's in verse 14, where he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. The first one is God's unfailing love for us. Why? Have you ever thought about this? Why do our loves not last? 
Why do our loves fail? Why do our love wane? Because ultimately, our satisfaction in the object of our love fails in our eyes. Whatever that is, it diminishes because the object of our love is not satisfying us anymore. At least not the way that they did. Why does God's love never fail? It never, it never wanes. It, 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 it never diminishes. It always stays white-hot passion for us. Even in the face of our failures, you know, our love, as long as you love me the way that I want you to love me, I'll return that love. But the moment you cease to love me the way that I want you to love me, then my love for you diminishes. God doesn't operate that way. His love never wanes. It never fails. It never ends because it's not grounded in you. It's grounded in his own character and his own promise. What's his promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. He made that in the earliest days of humanity, and he has been fulfilling that promise ever since. He's looked at all of our failures, every attempt we've had to make our name great rather than his. Every attempt we've had to say that, God, you're not good enough because you're not loving me the way I want you to love me. He says, I'm going to still love you because I'm not grounding my love in what you do or don't do for me but what I have done for you. My character, not yours. So let me ask you, is God good enough for you? If you lose everything dear to you today, will God still be enough for you? If I trace my sins back to their start, it's always, always, because somewhere along the way, I have thought that God was not enough, that I needed something more in addition. I knew he loved me. I knew he was for me, but I wanted just a little bit more. God says, no, my love never changes for you, even if you fail in your love to me, because it's rest in a promise and my character guarantees that promise. There's this beautiful verse, and it goes like this. God is not a man that he, that he has to change his mind. Nor is he a son of man that he has to repent. Has he not said, and will he not do it? You see, that's the beauty, isn't it? Our hope is grounded in God's unfailing love for us. But our hope is not just in God's love for us, but it is also in the second big idea in verse 16 where it says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. That word splendor is the word we get glory from. And so let me define the word glory because the second big idea is our hope rests not only in God's love but also God's undiminished glory. It means literally for something to be weighty, to be heavy, to something to be important, something to matter. 
And so God matters. God is the most weighty being in the cosmos. God is the most important being in the cosmos. So why is that? Because of God's deeds. Glory is defined by our deeds. And that includes God. I loved, uh, well, I can't say I loved, it was hard. It's three hours, Oppenheimer. I'm a history uh, major, so I had to go. And so I sat there for three hours, and it can be a little bit of a drama. I don't mean to spoil it for you, but if you don't know the story of Oppenheimer, that's not my fault. <laughs> the guy's been dead for a long time now. He is the one who ran the, uh, a project called the Manhattan Project to build the first atomic bomb that ultimately uh, became two bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and ended World War II. And Time Magazine called him Man of the Year uh, for being the father of the atomic bomb. The movie did a very good job of this. They showed his inner struggle that his deeds determined his glory. And he didn't like it. And so he struggled with it. That I, as the result of my physics, created something that killed hundreds of thousands of people and unleashed a nuclear world. Anyway, he struggled with that. And so if I didn't give too much away, you can go see it and endure three hours of your life that you're never going to get back. (laughs) In a lot of ways... Worship is like that story. When we gather together, yes, there are 10,000 different reasons of things you could do this morning in New York City. You could have got up this morning and you could be at brunch. And you could be enjoying the eggs and, and the toast. You could have a great time. You could, you could have woke up this morning and stayed in your air-conditioned apartment before you walked outside into the heat. You could be in Central Park and enjoying the day and getting a tan. There are literally hundreds of things that you could do. But you have decided on this morning whether you are at this point wishing you had made a different choice. You're in the right place. Because every Sunday in worship, we recount the deeds of the glorious God who not only made us, but saved us. We need that. You realize that's one of the things that the the Jewish people would do on an annual basis. They would gather in Jerusalem and somebody would recount the deeds of God. Long before they had Bibles, long before they had ways to read this at home, they gathered together and somebody recounted, and that's what we do in worship, is we recount it because we have to be reminded. Particularly, when do we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God to his promise? When we are unfaithful. We most need his, to hear his faithfulness when we have been unfaithful. Worship isn't a gathering of the faithful. It is the gathering of the unfaithful to hear about the faithful one who has accepted us, welcomed us, and bought us through his son, which brings me to his most glorious event, his unmerited favor. Do you see that in verse 70? May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of his hands for us, establish the works of our hands. We 
are hopeful because of God's unmerited favor. We call that what? Grace. In the Bible, there's another death and there's another grave besides Joseph. Jesus died on a cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb and being found, this is how Paul will describe it in Philippians 2, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to what? To death even death on a cross. You see, he's living humbly. There wasn't a day that Jesus was not in in, uh, understanding of his coming death. And so he lived that whole life in light of the fact that one day he would be put to death. But it wasn't humility without hope because Paul will go on in Romans 5 and say this, you see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I know for some of you that that sounds harsh. But the truth is that's part of humility too, isn't it? Jesus didn't die for the good. Jesus didn't die for the righteous. Jesus didn't die for those that got their life together. Jesus died for those who were ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. You, you hear the almost the sarcasm dripping. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't just die, and that was the end of the story. But it is through his death that he defeats death so that death is not the end of our story. We go on. You see, Jesus is not merely an example for us to follow. And I don't know how many times I've heard this, that Jesus lived this exemplary life, and so you do it too. It it, it almost came out as a bracelet. What would Jesus do? WWJD. But the truth is, they got the initials in the wrong places. It's not what would Jesus do in this situation. The truth is, is what did Jesus do? There's something that Jesus did that allows us to escape this mortal coil and go be with God face to face. This box of bones and in this psalm reminds us that we can live humbly and we can live hopeful. We live humbly when we remember we are mere mortals. We are decaying, we are dying, and we will return to the dust. And we live humbly when we remember uh, we live all of our lives on this earth before the very face of God who sees us, who knows us, and is our judge. And one day he was going to hold us all accountable for the one life he gave us to live. But we don't live this life without hope because our hope is in God's unfailing love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave a son. We live in hope of God's undiminished glory. His deeds, his many faithful thing deeds reflect in saving us. And we live in hope of God's unmerited favor for us. These are the lessons of a box of bones. It is the lessons of an empty tomb. Now can't you see what you believe matters? on how you live how many ever years God gives you on this planet may we live in light 
of who we are and why God loves us enough to send his own son and in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh, but through it he saved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this glorious message of grace. Father, we need to hear about your faithfulness because we often, in the secret places, in the dark places of home, or maybe just in our mind as we're walking about, we recount the stories of our failures and the failures of others. But there's one being in the whole cosmos that has not failed us, not one time, who has been faithful even at his own, your own personal cost. We thank you that Jesus Christ left your presence and died on the cross. And that you saw that as satisfactory to save. And you have worked that out through your spirit. And so we lift up our hearts that we might live humbly, but also hopeful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.